This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Minefield, a show that's I've forgotten what it's about. <laughs> uh, negotiating, interrogating something. Waleed Ali is my name. Oh, Scott Stevens man, is my That's the co-host. worst. No, Waleed, that's the worst ever. I mean, I no, because I just got too confused. You can either this, I, either stick with the script or yeah. do your little kind of lovely virtuosic pirouette on the top of a, an ethical pin. <laughs> <laughs> what do we right. what do we try to what do? What did I say? Here? The word we, I said was refract. You liked that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, refracting's pretty nice. But really, we try to unearth the dilemmas, the moral dilemmas that lay beneath so much of contemporary dispute, disagreement, debate, life. And do we try to diffuse it? We don't really try to diffuse it. We well, try to understand nice. it better. Yeah. I guess that's probably right. I like that eight years in we still don't know what the show is. Or what it does. Well, in fairness, what we're trying to do, when we began, I think it's fair to say that much of our public language wasn't quite as ethically slash morally inflected as it is now. Or loaded. Or loaded the way it is now. Um, and, And one of the things I think we were trying to do is to provoke a bit more considered reflection on what it is we do, why we do it. And how what we do is tied up with, is insinuated by certain things that maybe we wouldn't necessarily want. In other words, the broader implications of what we do, our sense of responsibility or not. But when so much of what we do is described in ethical terms, when the volume is turned up to a high moral degree then it it seems to me that one of the things we actually try to do maybe is to take some of the moral dimensions out of issues that are... It's weird. So what what you're saying is we called for the moralizing of things, we got what we wanted, and then we (laughs) discovered that we were very unhappy with it. Excellent. Well, by the way... And in fact, that's nowhere worse, I think, than when it comes to issues of political deliberation and compromise. Because when the moral language is ratcheted up, in political disagreements, then there's no way for you to go. The only, when the language is primarily moral, then the only way for you to back down is by making yourself effectively immoral or somehow morally compromised, which nobody really wants. Um, By the way, for first time listeners, the sentence I was meant to say is, the minefield is a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. All right, Scott. Well, you delivered a fantastic segue to today's topic, and then I veered you away again, which is very bad of me. Why don't no. you tell us what we're talking about? Well, uh, in a way, in fact, we're talking about political disagreement, but not just any kind of political disagreement. Because I think one of the things that we often heard, especially during the highly polarized, fractious politics that, let's say, really broke open in the wake of Brexit in 2016, or the Brexit referendum, in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, and in a number of other, let's just call them fairly seismic political shifts that took place. One of the things we often heard in response to the fractiousness, I really think that's the only word that I can find, of so much political debate, was that, you know, we need to find new ways of coming together, we need to explore new forms of political unity, of consensus building. And you even, we, have, we even heard that, didn't we, very, very prominently in uh, the current U.S. President Joe Biden's election campaign and in his inaugural address. He wanted to find ways of bringing the country together, of finding new forms of unity and consensus building, new forms of cooperation. And I think, I mean, there's, there's something really admirable in that. I don't think we'd necessarily want to object to it. But there's also a real problem, isn't there, when a skewed political system finds forms of consensus around issues that one would regard as being immoral or unjust or fundamentally politically flawed. Um, Just think, for instance, if we go back to, say, a declaration of war against Iraq, let's say. There was a remarkable degree of political consensus around that. And I think we would both agree that that political consensus was flawed. We didn't... I feel like you're making more an American point, actually, there than a a plenary one. 
because there was disagreement here. Labor opposed it under Simon Crean, as I remember, because I've got a, just for some reason, this image remains in my mind of him addressing the troops who are about to go, I think, hmm. and him saying, I'm going to be honest, I don't think you should be going. So there was a partisan difference here and all the protests, et cetera. And in the UK, as I recall, you were far more likely to oppose the war if you were a Tory voter. Yes, that's right. Than if you were a Labor voter. Yes. So there were partisan differences there. The US, I think, is where you really saw the convergence of all this stuff. So Republican, Democrat, but also the mainstream media really locked in behind it and then belatedly issued apologies, I think, for not doing their job mm. um, as they perhaps should have. But it's interesting you choose that example because even though I'm inclined to agree with your categorisation of it, there would be people still who would say, no, no, that's not an example of something that was, what was the phrase you used? I don't know, let's just say illegitimate or whatever. No, I still stand by that decision and I still think that was the right mm. policy to, mm, to pursue. Um, and I suspect that would be true no matter what example you provided, which kind of in a way underscores where we are a little bit. We, we should acknowledge we're doing this show in the aftermath of a whole lot of things. I mean, in, in Australia, there's the, the current quite bizarre scandal unfolding around Scott Morrison swearing himself secretly into ministries, mm. not even telling the ministers who held those portfolios that... That they are now, now jointly held ministries, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some very, and the secrecy around it and so on. I mean, that's a very odd affair, which may or may not be relevant to this. I, I, I'm almost unsure what to do with that because it's so unusual. Mm. But the other thing we've seen is the raiding of Donald Trump's uh, private residence in Mar-a-Lago um, by the FBI. And then the sort of the fallout from that, almost along predictable lines, right, in, in a fairly partisan way. So that you are either inclined to see this as finally the truth and justice, etc., is catching up with Donald Trump, or you respond to this as, well, this is yet another, you know, deep state conspiracy of, of some sort, and it becomes political mileage for Donald Trump. And we're already seeing him use it that way, and we're already seeing those who are among his more ardent followers interpret it in that way and the protesting and so on that surrounds it. Um, and it kind of underscores to me hmm. how what is being eroded in this process of hyper-contestation or hyper-conflictual politics, and America is the, you know, the apotheosis, mm. apotheosis of this, is that there is no longer some kind of what you might call group transcending commitment, no longer some kind of either institutional um, or civic moral, a common ground that we can use to assess whether or not justice is being served. In other words, I guess it's a way of saying these grand concepts that used to be the way we would hold society together in some way, like justice, mm -hmm. themselves have just become the political playthings of our partisan commitments, yeah. um, or at least many people's partisan commitments, enough to make it dysfunctional. And so you talk about the Iraq war, it I think that could easily become yet another example of that. It becomes a tricky thing. Think of an example where we would agree, oh, that was a terrible thing in politics. They're very thin on the ground. Mm, it's true. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting here is that when everything becomes politicised, when everything becomes a matter of loyalty to one side and fierce opposition to one's opponents, then I think there are a number of things that follow from that. And, and you know, as we see this play out in the United States in particular, Waleed, I think you're right. One of the things that it's very difficult not to feel an immense sense of gratitude about is that we don't see quite the same thing happening here. We certainly don't see it to the same degree. We don't see the same ferocity. We, we don't see the same volume. Just stepping onto the Scott Morrison issue for just a moment. I mean, one of the remarkable things, I think, that we are conspicuously not seeing in the United States is that in the wake of revelations about what I think a reasonable person would regard as being prime ministerial overreach, something more akin to a presidential style of political decision-making than a parliamentary style of decision-making, we've seen I think a stunning degree of bipartisan condemnation of this. Uh, former prime ministers on the liberal side uh, coming out saying this was either scandalous or this was, uh, I forget Malcolm Turnbull's precise description of it. I don't know that you can cite Malcolm Turnbull 
No, you're way. right. You're right. Uh, but even even John Howard was less than impressed, but said that uh, that in response, Scott Morrison should certainly not leave Parliament lest this precipitate a by-election, uh, which it certainly would. But I think what's interesting here is the idea that nobody is above the rules of the game. That even if even if we agree that there are fundamentally competing visions about what's good for our common life, even if we disagree ferociously on the way in which we might pursue certain fundamental principles or certain fundamental ideas, that nobody is above the rules of the game. And once somebody steps outside of the rules of the game, then uh, it's only proper for both sides of politics to join together and to say, that's simply not on, that's beyond the pale. I think it's the, it's precisely that that we've not seen in the United States. I mean, there ought to be a certain moment at which certain institutions can be regarded by everybody involved as being fundamentally nonpartisan, non-implicated in partisan politics. And therefore, when those institutions, when those traditions click into place, when they snap into action, there's a certain degree of partisan restraint then that ought to follow, where everybody steps back and says, yes, let's let this process go. Let's let this institution do its business. But instead, what we've seen is for even the FBI to become uh, spoken about, uh, characterized as, as you described it, a partisan plaything, yet another partisan actor. And therefore, the recipient of threats, the object of possible or uh, at least intentioned or intended violence. So I think there's, a, there's something there that's really troubling where partisanism, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there really should be partisan disagreement in the way that we do politics. It really does yeah. come down to competing visions. And there really are, I think, different ways of understanding and thinking about the kind of values that we ought to prioritize above others, the types of goals that we ought to pursue, the order in which we ought to prioritize those goals. I mean, it's these not are the same thing as partisanship, though. What, what we mean by partisanship is the subordination of conviction to tribe. Yes, that's right. That's which right. Which is a slightly different. Yeah, yeah, well, but... I, I wouldn't say slightly. I would say significantly different thing. But it's not always it's not always easy to keep those things apart. For instance, partisanism yeah, yeah. is also reflected in the language that one uses, the traditions that one draws upon, the particular heroes that But that's different that because that's evokes. an expression of one's conviction. Yes, I think when people right. criticise partisanship, what they mean is... If you were wearing a different jumper, you would not be making. You would be making a completely different argument. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing that would need to change is the the colour associated with you, not the way you actually think about the world. No, right? you are only offering right. this position out of a tribal loyalty or a tribal conviction. Can I just come back to the point you were making though? Because th that's a bit of a alley we don't need to go down. I agree with what you're saying. Of course I do. I mean, it's obvious that what you're saying is is correct and that the differences between Australia and America that these two episodes highlight are to be celebrated by Australians and lamented, I would say, by Americans, mm. but at least they should be. Obviously, that's true. But there is a risk of overstating the virtue of what's happening in Australia because at the same time, everyone I can see who's acting in this way and responding to the, that sort of Scott Morrison's secret ministry episode in the way they are have political imperatives at play and have political gains to be made by staking out the positions that they are. Mm. In the case of those in the coalition, there would be those who are genuinely angry, and I think Karen Andrews is an example of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this is a, a coalition that has just lost government in an election in no small part because Scott Morrison himself personally was a drag on the vote in certain important seats, mm -hmm. which they subsequently lost. In other words, the coalition's political future relies now on them having distance from Scott Morrison. In a way, that was never true of someone like John Howard after he lost office. Mm, that's true. Right. So um, um, I'm not saying that the coalition... Yeah, yes and no. That, that probably shouldn't be overstated too much either, though. Which bit? Uh, about John Howard. I mean, there was there was a kind of, uh, while he was regarded and revered as a long-serving prime minister, as a party elder, the very fact that Kevin Rudd was able to position himself as the rightful heir to Howard's legacy, and the fact that Howard himself lost in such remarkable manner, that did create its own imperative to create a degree of distance and some of the missteps, some of the bad decisions that the Howard government made, not not oh, least I not quite, least surrounding. I quite disagree. With oh, this. really? Okay, this is yeah, another show. Because but we should do it. I tell you why. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. We should yes. do it in a different show. But I'll tell you why in brief. <laughs> the fact that Kevin Rudd positioned himself as the inheritor of Howard's legacy 
meant that 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 was a stamp of approval for Howard's political position. It was a position and a legacy that was to be amended, but not junked. You weren't to distance yourself from it. And even when it came to Kevin Rudd doing the apology to the Stolen Generation, for example. That's what it's going to raise. Yeah, but the the coalition didn't swing in behind Kevin Rudd. Mm, No, that's right. There was fracture and... Brendan Nelson, who was the opposition leader, the new coalition leader, but the opposition leader at the time, his speech in Parliament on that occasion was not a full-throated support no. for the way that Kevin Rudd had framed the issue. So this wasn't a party or a coalition that was walking away from everything that Howard stood for or trying to say he's not of us and he's certainly not of our future. That's not what that is. And I would argue, in fact, I recall I probably did argue um, in print at the time that well after John Howard had left politics because of his defeat, he was still the most important political figure in the country because mm-hmm. the Labor, the new Labor government, the Rudd government, was moulding itself around the political facts that I guess they regarded as immovable now that John Howard had created. And you saw this on asylum seeker policy, for example. You saw this on Kevin Rudd describing himself as a fiscal conservative, et cetera. So yeah. I actually think the, the, the resonances or the after echoes of, of Howard are, are totally different to what you're seeing with the Morrison situation. Anyway. Look, I, I think you're right on just about every point. I think what that minimises, however, is the extent to which uh, Howard's opposition to climate action, for instance... Yeah. Uh, and his increasingly unpopular positions surrounding uh, recognition, reconciliation and apology. Those two facts, as well as the lingering, let's just say the lingering stench surrounding Iraq, that did create the conditions in which Malcolm Turnbull could then unseat Brendan Nelson. And it created the environment in which he could legitimately, Turnbull that is, advocate something radically different when it came to climate policy in particular. So I think there were crucial Did you recall he got rolled for that? Yes, yes, he did. But I think had Howard left office in a more popular way, in a way that was more dignified, say if he had resigned uh, or he had sort of given something over to a likely successor, um, then I think it would have been far more difficult to step away even slightly from Howard's legacy. All right. I'm not sure I can agree with that. Okay. Anyway, that, that aside, all I'm saying here is that the coalition's position is, or at least there is a plausible reading of it that says that it is informed by a political imperative to create distance from Scott Morrison. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who are genuinely miffed and have every reason to be, but there's no political reason for them not to be either, right? On the Labor side... I can't help but feel they're making too much of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this in the way they describe the coalition's response to this, right? So I've heard Labor ministers now, new government ministers, saying, well, Peter Dutton thinks that what Scott Morrison did is fine. Well, he never said that. Yeah, that's right. right. What they're trying to do is take something that seems, at least at this point, to have been the conduct of one person the victims of which, apart from the Australian people or the Westminster system, are his own colleagues, and turn that into look at this party. The way they're talking about it, the, the current government is talking about this in opposition mode. Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're in an election campaign and they're trying to unseat the government that's already unseated. And look at who this Scott Morrison character is. Well, yes, but he's defeated and he's gone and his colleagues are... So anyway, all I'm saying is... While I think the differences between Australia and America on these sorts of issues are are important to acknowledge and for Australians, I think, to be grateful for, I do think we're not... We're seeing something here that isn't as pure as a bipartisan gathering around the, the preservation of cherished institutions. Mm. We're, we're seeing a political game being played here as well. And it may well be that those two things coincide happily for a moment or two, but I, I think we should be a little careful about celebrating more than is there okay. to be celebrated. I'm, I'm not trying to celebrate more than is appropriate. I think the dynamic that you've described where a an elected government continues to act like an opposition, that's something that's kind of to be expected when Labor was out of power for so long and given the fact that we are mere months out of a federal election. So it's it's very, very difficult for, I think, a complete changing of gears. In other words, for a new government to sound simply governmental as if they are the party who is in power and not to sort of drift back into opposition mode. I think that's that, that's right. But I, uh, to my mind, Waleed, you know, 
like I said, I don't want to celebrate too much. But can we just notice, speaking about ignominious political defeats, Donald Trump was similarly a drag on the GOP ticket. He lost power. At the same time as he wasn't. At the same time as he wasn't. It's a more complicated situation, especially in voluntary voting systems. Of course it is. Of course it is. But he was resoundingly defeated by certain measures. (laughs) He threw one of the most ignominious, ignominious political tantrums in recent political history upon his defeat. He was, to some extent, at least morally complicit, if not legally complicit, in the incitement of violence against a House of Representative government. And he has been flagrantly guilty of corrupting the political atmosphere in the United States to the extent that what is by any counts an egregious lie is being accepted by a remarkable, a stunning number of voters as if it were true. And becoming a litmus test for membership of the real Republican Party. Of the real Republican Party. That's exactly right. So how it is that this man, with that record, under the weight of mutually overlapping, perhaps reinforcing investigations at criminal, uh, judicial, and congressional levels, all taking place at once, how this man can still be the litmus test of loyalty to that party when there are senior voices within that party who are far from heretics. They're far from dissenters. They are simply Republicans who would be, let's just say, historically recognizable to Republicans who served in office, say, 15 years ago, (laughs) such as Representative Liz Cheney, who, as we record this, is almost certainly prepared to lose her seat in the GOP primary in the state of Wyoming. The fact that polarization in the United States, along a single axis, whether or not one is loyal to Trump, the fact that that could go all the way down and become not just a matter of one's loyalty or one's position within the Republican Party, but the way that it can also define the way that one sees oneself in American civic, social, cultural life. The fact that that is the sole, the fact that that can function as a sole criteria of membership is something that really is staggering to me, such that uh, news reporting, fundamental standards of epistemology, um, the findings of law enforcement agencies, none of these things are to be given credence if one finds oneself departing from this soul the sole axis of membership. I I just find that staggering. So the way I would diagnose it generally is that this is because American politics has become a politics of narratives rather than facts. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. And I'm not. I don't mean to posit a really simple dichotomy there. By the way, I I understand that's a complex field, but once narrative becomes really all that matters, then facts are either presented in alternative fashion, or they're just marshaled in a such a way as to hammer out the narrative. I've mm-hmm. kind of said that in a, in a way that um, almost no one would. <laughs> except for obvious reasons, Donald Trump was kind of the the world's ultimate postmodern politician. <laughs> That's kind of what post-truth is, really, in a way. It's a, it's another expression of a, a kind of um, postmodern commitment to truth being something that's highly malleable and ultimately ideologically derived. Yeah. I'm being a little bit cheeky in putting it that way, I understand, but... There is some, there's a grain of truth there to, yeah. to be acknowledged. And you notice this, actually, I think, even in the way... I mean, take the FBI. What is the position of the FBI in all this? Well, right now, the FBI is anti-Trump deep state, right? That's the argument. That's definitely not the way that Republicans or Democrats saw the FBI in the lead up to the 2016 election, when the FBI was this thing that was undermining Hillary Clinton and it was basically a political operation of the Republican Party. Remember that? Yeah. Or even in the lead up or the aftermath, I suppose you would say, of the Iraq invasion, the invasion of Iraq, right, where the intelligence um, and security institutions of the United States 
had either given us bad intelligence or were politically motivated in the way that they dealt with intelligence. And so this explains the disaster of the Iraq invasion. Mm. Um, my point is that the idea of these institutions as being politically motivated, it's not merely that Trump has done that, and he just does that in the most brazen, that's right. potentially scandalous way. But that's become kind of a, a creeping move in politics, mm. right? The, the, depending on where your own political leanings are, you would see this either as a crazy conspiracy theory or as insightful political analysis, that's right. <laughs> given the issue. That's a very strange situation to be in, isn't it? Like I, the question becomes, can democracies or really any form of government that relies on institutions survive that becoming a standard move? Yeah, yeah. And look, before we bring our guest in, and I'm really eager to hear what he has to say, let's just try to crystallize this into a single point, into a single fundamental question, which is the one that we're trying to deal with today. Let's agree on the idea that democracies presume disagreement and that disagreement is not just a bug or not just an unwanted side effect within democratic political orders, but they are part of the very ethos of democratic politics. Uh, that disagreement is, okay, let's maybe not say it's necessarily a good thing, but it is essential to the ethos of democratic citizenship. Mm. The question is then, how wide does that disagreement get to go? How deep is the chasm between competing parties? How thoroughgoing does that disagreement have to be before the disagreement goes from being interminable, in other words, it just keeps going, we can never seem quite to get to the end of it, to being incommensurable, where we no longer fundamentally understand one another. We no longer accept what the other person has to say or the reasons that they give for why they say it. We no longer trust in their underlying motivations. We no longer see them necessarily as members of a shared political uh, community or participants in a common political project. How deep does the disagreement get to go before something fundamentally breaks? In other words, how much, if we want to go back to the earlier term of polarization or partisanship, just how partisan, how polarized can democracies become before they stop working altogether? I think this is, in many respects, the pressing question of our time. It's the pressing question for those of us who care about the conditions of our common life and the health of democratic communities. And I see, I think we're seeing, if you like, a kind of perverse lab, a perverse test case of precisely this question taking place at this very moment in the United States. Excellent way to bring in our guest. We really shot for the stars on this one. I'm, I'm giddy with excitement, Waleed, I must confess. Robert Talese is the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Uh, he's written a series of really important books, I think, on uh, democracy, democratic life, and the demands that democracies place on citizens, the most recent of which is it's simply the most important book on this topic I've read in the last, I think, four years. Uh, his most recent book is Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe the Other Side. Robert, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to uh, be joining the conversation. Um, let me just begin by trying to bring together or pull together a number of the different threads that we've already, what, just spread out on the table? I don't think there's <laughs> been really sure. any sort of any point of connection among them. But let me just put it this way. One of the things that strikes me about the way that you describe democracy and its obligations is that you do so in a manner that is self-consciously and unapolog unapologetically moral. You describe citizenship within a democracy as being a moral task and as imposing certain moral obligations upon citizens. Why don't you just pick us up at that point? Well, sure. Yeah. Um, in a democracy, we are political equals. That's the, the basis of the very idea of democratic collective self-government is that nobody, politically speaking, is another's boss, that citizens are in, not only get an equal say, but are entitled to an equal say. And I think that um, that fundamental premise of democracy entails that the office of democratic citizenship is a moral office because when we act as citizens, we play a role in determining how the state's power will be exercised over our fellow citizens. And 
exercising power, forcing others to do things they don't want to do or don't feel that they should be made to do, while recognizing that they are your equals, it's very difficult to thread that needle. It looks as if uh, relations where coercive power is exercised over others is paradigmatically, uh, these are paradigmatic relations of inequality. So democracy is the attempt to reconcile our political equality with the fact that politics is always about power. The Democrats' view, um, and by Democrat there, I mean the believer in democracy's view, is that um, if everybody gets to participate as an equal in directing that power, then its exercise is consistent with everyone's equality. How's that sound? Look, I mean, that sounds really good to me. The immediate question, of course, <laughs> sorry, I don't even preface that with, you know, sort of in theory or in principle. I think there's something both rigorous and compelling about it. The very principle of beginning with democracy along the lines of with a presumption of equality. I mean, that's the only thing that takes the hard edge off the inevitability of political coercion, that people are being made to do things they don't necessarily want to do. And that, of course, is, is also the principle that undergirds the concept or the principle of consent, that, okay, this mightn't be my ideal, this mightn't be the goal that I want to pursue, this mightn't even be the particular order, the particular social order that I feel to be most a part of, but I consent to this particular way of ordering our common life. Uh, on the understanding that those who have engaged in the process of deliberation have done so in good faith, that they are, even right. if their understanding of our moral life isn't quite, or our common or civic political life isn't quite the same as mine, that our goals are somehow in some way, to some degree at least, commensurate with one another. They aren't traitors right. to our common cause. So the principle of consent that these are participants that still belong together, that we somehow still have a common stake. I mean, all of those things, it seems to me, are, are inseparable. I guess the problem then comes, and this is something Walid and I have been talking about. We've also been writing about it for some time now. The problem mm. comes then when one side of the political divide doesn't see the other side of the political divide as participants within the conditions right. of our common life or as good faith deliberators within a political debate or a disagreement. In other words, the reasons they give aren't the reasons that are really involved. They have some kind of nefarious idea beneath it. So, so I mean, that then means... Oh, sorry, or yeah. that democracy itself is merely a structure for a legitimating the status quo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because right. of the power differentials that exist already within society. So even the political fiction of equality becomes oppression. Right. So... Let me, let me see if this doesn't uh, help make a move in this, because I think that, Scott, what you're describing is the, the central or fundamental difficulty uh, that democracy is, attempts in sometimes very plodding and uh, unsure ways to navigate. Now, so back up one step. As a democratic theorist, I don't, I don't think democracy is sweetness and light. I think democracy is muddling through and um, that democracy's dysfunctions um, can at best be managed. They can't be fixed. But let me suggest this. Another implication of the premise of the political equality of uh, democratic citizens is that when you're an equal, nobody gets to force you to think or say anything. Part of our equality is bound up with the idea of political disagreement in good faith. So it seems to me that what you're describing is this fundamental, uh, and I think you're right, especially in my country, this is part of the, I think, the right um, diagnosis of, of what's going wrong. Um, part of what it is to be a democratic citizen is to recognize that others, because they are your political equals, get to make up their own minds about things. And that means that sometimes they're going to make up their minds and adopt views that you think are inconsistent with justice or fall short of, you know, what's rational or defensible. When you have a, a large swath of citizens who are committed to the thought that there is no spectrum of acceptable disagreement. 
when you have a group of citizens who are overtly committed to the idea that anyone who is not in lockstep with some particular political idea or identity is by that reason alone uh, divested from the democratic project, that itself is a profoundly anti-democratic thought mm. because it's a denial of political equality. And yet there must be those sort of commitments that are beyond the pale, right? Oh, absolutely. So you, you talk, for example, there about one of the axioms that follows democratic equality or this sort of regarding each other as political equals is that one cannot be forced to think or say anything particular. But we do this in subtle forms. This is the criticism that often gets mounted, right? So, I don't know, the pledging of allegiance to country or flag or queen, etc., from school kids or the standing for the national anthem at various moments until someone takes a knee or decides they don't want to get involved in that, um, as we've seen even in Australian sporting context every now and again. These are expressions of a dissent, but right. they become jarring precisely because the opposite of that is so frictionlessly manifest. Now, I wonder if, you know, in the form of national rituals, et cetera, I wonder if right. there, there are two ways you could square that. One, one is to say, well, we tolerate difference and we accept that everyone will make up their own difference, sorry, their own minds about things, but the democracy only has meaning because of the vessel of the nation state and a kind of commitment to the, um, the well-being and the, the flourishing and the common future of the people within the nation state um, and therefore rituals of assent to that that apply subtle, sometimes not so subtle pressure on people to assent to that are entirely appropriate because the nation is the only thing that can enjoy that status within a democracy. Or you say, yeah, um, these rituals are there because they express a majority preference and dissent is just part of the game that goes on. But that that seems then to overlook that, well, the, the pressure is actually quite real if you feel an objection to it in some way. We're seeing this play out in Australia, I think, in an increasingly sort of radicalising slice of Indigenous politics, for example. And I suspect the same thing is happening with um, some dimensions of racial politics in the US. Sure. Um, let me make a distinction, though, Waleed, because I think that, well, two distinctions, actually. I think that uh, when we're talking about children, uh, not full citizens, citizens in some attenuated sense, there are all kinds mm. of things we, we think it's okay to force them to do, like go to school, right? So let's, yeah. and that children, this example of the Pledge of Allegiance with children was your, was the first place you went, I think is telling. So children is a separate kind of issue. They're citizens in training. They are future citizens. Maybe there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of latitude the state has when it comes to uh, citizens in training. So let's set them aside. We can go back if we want. Nobody in my country that I'm aware of who's been taken seriously thinks that Colin Kaepernick should have been arrested for taking a knee. Sure. So there's no claim that standing for the Pledge of Allegiance is a legal requirement. People think it's a civic requirement. It's a moral requirement. Um, mm. If you don't want to do it, if you don't want to celebrate the 4th of July, if you don't want to pledge allegiance to the flag and you're an adult, you know, there's lots of uh, soft social sanctions that you might be subjected to. And I'm not calling them soft because I think that they're not, um, you know, they have power. Not saying that. It's just not coercive power. You don't get thrown in a cage for not. Well, it, by it the is state. coercive, just in a different way, right? That, that's increasingly what coercive? we're seeing. Is well, I, I work in media. The level of self censorship I'm observing in media practitioners is like I've never seen before. And the, what they fear is not some kind of state sanction, a fine, or something like that. What they fear is such severe backlash in a social slash professional sense that I think they would consider themselves as being coerced in some way that is real, though not formal. Oh, sure. But it's not the state exercising the power. That's the I difference. Understand that. I understand that difference. I just wonder if it's increasingly a, a distinction without a real difference. Because if, if you feel that social coercion more acutely than you would state intervention, then 
the whole psychology, I guess, of democratic equality shrinks. The space for that to be observed as a real moral or civic bond withers. Like it just, it just ceases to be there. Well, I'm not so sure because, remember, we're talking about democratic equality in your role as a citizen. So none of the examples, mm. even in self-censorship, I'm not, and by the way, I don't mean to say that these are not that these are not social problems, that there are all kinds of forms of pressure. Uh, there are all kinds of bad consequences for not being compliant with social pressure. But losing your status as a citizen is not one of them. I think it's, it may be worthwhile. I realize this is a little bit of a pivot from what we're talking about. But I'm just curious about the way that the differences between us and the extent to which the disagreements among us have become incommensurable in the sense that we can't really have the disagreements and still remain together as participants within a common political project. I'll, I'll never forget, Robert, that one of the things that I learned after the 2016 presidential election, that I'll, I'll confess, maybe every maybe two days go by when I don't think about it, but then I'll think about it pretty soon after, is that Trump voters tended, one of their favorite television shows tended to be The Walking Dead. And Clinton voters, one of their favorite television shows tended to be Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we've seen those kinds of preferential distinctions so that one's political choices or predilections keep trickling down not just into voting patterns or into the depth of feeling that one has about a particular issue, but the kind of things that we consume, the places where we right. tend to live, the cultural objects we tend to favor, the values that are expressed in those cultural objects that we tend to warm towards. I, I guess more recently, um, Democrat voters tend to prefer a show like HBO's Succession, whereas uh, Republican voters tend to gravitate towards something like Yellowstone. So right. it's when political differences, even profound moments of disagreement of opinion, become not so much differing statements of moral value but they become something like a lifestyle. They become something that defines the totality of one's existence within a particular social or political order so that we no longer have those moments of overlapping appreciation or what de Tocqueville referred to as, you know, those kind of either voluntary or simply spontaneous moments of association and cooperation whereby we discover, oh, yeah, there really is something in that other person that even though we disagree, I kind of like anyway. So I, right. I, I guess that's one of the one of the expressions of kind of radical political disagreement, where polarization escapes the bounds of politics and comes to uh, define the way that we interact with one another in civic and social life, or don't interact with one another. That right. for me is probably even more portentous than some of what we're seeing in the straightforwardly political realm. I think that that's right. And, you know, at, at that extreme, and uh, I think this is an apt description of what's going on in my country, you know, the language of disagreement even seems to fall away. Because it's not as if in, in these cases one can say, you know, the one side stands for P, the other side stands for not P, where P is a variable for some policy. Um, it's that the difference is so extreme that it's a matter of just a form of life uh, or a lifestyle. So that that seems to me correct. And in the States, this is especially pronounced. You know, uh, the, the distance you live from a local park is tightly tethered to your voting patterns. You know, what brand of uh, chain coffee you drink in the morning uh, is similarly tied to uh, your partisan affiliation. And so what we have in the States and you see this uh, in some democracies in Europe, though it's less pronounced, is a kind of de facto social segregation along partisan lines, such that your casual, everyday interactions are extremely likely to occur only among people who share your political ideas. And what that means is that your conception of the courteous coworker, or the responsible parent, or um, uh, the vigilant neighbor, all become coterminous with your idea of your co-partisan. And so we, in the states, increasingly get our ideas 
about what the other side thinks, what they value, what they prioritize, and how they live from our own side. And it turns out that people on our own side have a lot to gain by crafting our conceptions of what the other side is like in ways that demonizes them. That seems to me to be, you know, a sort of fundamental uh, dysfunction for a democratic society because, just to bring it back to, you know, what I claim is the fundamental commitment, it's a fundamental failure of equality. You can't recognize that the members of the other party are entitled to an equal say if, you know, the social environment is set up so that you see them only as ignorant, benighted, threatening, uh, anti-democratic mobs. Here's, here's my question then. Okay. There's something I've always admired about John Dewey's conception of what he described as the daily democratic interactions, the casual sorts of habits of deference, of turn-taking, of politeness that to some extent build up our capacity for democratic life from within, but can't really be described as political. Um, democratic there is kind of a, a moral disposition towards other human beings right. as, as human beings. It, okay. seems to, it seems to me that democracy, in order to be democracy, you know, there's something subtly but importantly different from politics as politics, requires something like non-politicized spaces or, not, or the possibility of non-politicized action. Right. Um, and yet one of the functions, I think, of social media, for instance, has been to place politics, culture, disagreement, contestation, zero-sum choices, all within the same bag, all in the same space. And what that's meant then is that there is a real incentive for popular culture, film, television, sport, non-political institutions to demonstrate to burnish their political or moral bona fides on any number of hot-button points of political disagreement, which means you'll have films or television shows or, or the activities of athletes or games or jerseys emblazoned with a kind of political stance whereby they try to weigh in on a particular political moment. But in such a way right. that isn't about political debate. No, that's that, that, that's but right. It's about uh, speaking a truth and being on the right side of history. Yes, that's perfectly said, Waleed. Thank you. Here's here's my question: Is that doing more harm than good by politicizing everything, even those institutions or those spaces where we can simply meet with one another in a manner that's not politically overdetermined, or does that provide? a different way of getting people to think about issues of common moral or political contestation outside of the arena of politics. In other words, is the politicization of everything, is this a good thing? Or is this minimizing or eradicating even those opportunities for incidental contact with people with whom we might otherwise disagree? Yeah, so I think it's a I think it's a bad thing. You know, the the saturation of not politics. I mean, we can mean all kinds of things. People say everything is politics, and maybe there's a sense in which that's true. But the saturation of partisanship, of partisan identity into every aspect of our lives, such that, as you were just saying, Scott. There are the shows that the liberals watch and the movies that the conservatives go to and the places where Democrats vacation uh, and the cars that um, Republicans drive and the clothing that liberals wear um, and so on and so forth. The partitioning of social space into very explicit, in most cases, sites for partisan signaling looks like in some instances, like it's democratically a good thing. More and more people are participating and there are more ways to participate. And just like John Dewey said, we recognize now that democracy is not just about voting. It's about, you know, day-to-day -day dispositions and, and temperament. Um, but 
when those everyday spaces, when those dispositions and temperaments have been colonized by not democracy, but by partisan identity, some of the central capacities uh, that we need to develop within ourselves in order to function well as democratic citizens begin to erode. We lose sight of the range and the breadth of reasonable disagreement. We become more inclined to see those who are different from us as, for that reason, divested from the democratic project, which I should just mention, I mean, it's hard to think of a more anti-democratic sentiment than the sentiment that democracy is only for people like me. (laughs) So I I think that um, the saturation of partisan politics, although it looks like it, uh, you know, it it, it sometimes strikes us as as the sign of a vibrant and healthy participatory active citizenry. Um, And in many instances it is. I just think that there's a range of essential, non-eliminable democratic activities that um, when democracy is all we do together, we get bad at it. Mm. Is that paradoxical? Is, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> No, it is. It is. But it, it's also allied, I thought, alloyed, I should say, to a commitment not to democracy, but to liberation or some other political outcome. In other words, that's the thing that matters not any question of how you got there. It's a politics of ends, not a politics of means. And democracy is, I think, by definition, a politics of means with ends in mind, but um, inherently means. Robert, we are very sadly, I think tragically, out of time. Tragic in the sense that it's very sad, but also in the sense, the Greek sense, that it was inevitable and always going to happen. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll, pro- we'll have to get you back, I think, That's to funny. continue this conversation because this is such rich terrain. It's such a prescient topic. There's so much more to mind. But thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciated talking to you both. Thank you so much. That's Robert Talese, W. Alton Jones, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. And that is it for The Minefield for now on ABC RN. Uh, follow us on the ABC Listen app, though, where you can binge The Minefield's back catalogue anytime you like. And why wouldn't you want to do that all the time? It's also worth noting that we're going to be at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas for a special broadcast of the minefield. It's on the 18th of September, which is a Sunday. We're going to be discussing the topic, a related topic to the show we've just done, on whether contempt is corroding democracy. We'll be joined by a guest. And if you happen to be in town, we'd love to be joined by you too. We'll see you next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.